we're going to get started. This is our sixth week in the Gospel of Luke, and last week we were going over chapter 13 and the very beginning of 14. And as Chris mentioned a few times, chapter 13 was kind of somber. Um, I think I heard him say it a few different times throughout the sermon, and it continually warned us about our need to repent and follow after Christ. And then at the end of last week, we're suddenly jumping into this banquet where Jesus is at this banquet with a bunch of Pharisees. And he, he's asked a question by one of the Pharisees. Sorry, he notices a man who has whose body was swollen with fluid, and proposes a question to the Pharisee. And he asks him, is it lawful for me to heal this man because it was on the Sabbath? And none of the Pharisees answered Jesus. Personally, I think they were kind of tired of just being like obliterated every time they asked Jesus a question um, because they, they ask him something and then Jesus just like snaps right back at him. And they're just like, so I think they were just kind of tired of that and were just like, nope, not doing it. So Jesus answers his own question. He heals the man, and then he points out their hypocrisy. He tells them, wouldn't every single one of you, if your ox fell into a well, or your son fell into a well, wouldn't you pull him out even if it was the Sabbath? So Jesus calls them out on this hypocrisy by being like, y'all would do the exact same thing, but yet you call me out on it. And so as we continue into verse 7, Jesus is still at the same dinner party. And one aspect of this that we might not understand in today's culture is that these dinner parties had a huge social aspect to them. We might have like bits and pieces of that today, but when I have friends and family over, I don't have like assigned seats in my house and be like, the most important person sits here. We actually have a picture of this past Easter. Um, so. Kara and I decided to have both of our families over. So this is our entire living room and kitchen. We literally sat wherever we could fit. So, and also I love this picture because when you start looking at faces, they're just great because most everyone is like, there was like 10 pictures and I just randomly picked one and I didn't even notice it until it went up there. So anyway, we don't, we don't pick where people go and say, you're going to sit here because you have the highest place of honor. We literally just fit wherever we could sit. And it was great. We had an awesome time but it was totally different in this day and age. Because what would happen is there were certain seats that were more honorable than other seats. It was usually the ones that were closest to the host. And y'all kind of threw off my example by sitting way down there and not here, so I'm just gonna use the second row. So my friend Hayden here, he is closest to the host, me in this case. So he is in the highest seat of honor. So, yeah. So what would happen at this dinner party is as you come in, usually your host seats you based on where you're supposed to go. But at this dinner party, Jesus noticed everyone was just seating themselves. So he kind of starts telling them this, this parable. Um, in verse 7, he said, he told them a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they would choose the best places for themselves. When you're invited by someone to a wedding banquet, don't sit in the place of honor because a more distinguished person than you may have been invited by your host. The one who invited both of you may come to say and say to you, give up your place to this man, and then in humiliation you will proceed to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when the one who invited you comes, he will say to you, friend, move up higher. You will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So again, Kate, 
sorry, Hayden, is currently in the place of honor. But in this example, he set himself down there, but then Matthias walks in, and me being the host, says, I'm so sorry, Hayden. Matthias needs to sit in the place of honor. But all of these other seats are already, <laughs> yeah. All of these other seats are already filled up, though. So instead of, instead of having everyone scoot down a seat, where does Hayden get to go? The seat all the way in the back. And he's pretty embarrassed at this point because he set himself down in the seat of honor, saying, I'm the most important guest here. And then me, the host, comes and says, so sorry. You have to move to the back because there's a more important guest here. So anyway, there is these great social aspects to these dinners. Um, and we just don't really have the same thing nowadays, or at least not that I've experienced, but um, yeah, that would be super embarrassing for Hayden, though. So Jesus calls us to do something countercultural, pretty much as he always does. Rather than honoring ourselves by choosing the highest honor, he tells us to humble ourselves and put others first um, by choosing to take the lowest place. So in our example, if Hayden walked in, he wouldn't set himself down here. He'd set himself down back there. Then when I, the host, walk in, and I'm like, Hayden, wh what are you doing back there? You're supposed to be up here. Hayden's no longer embarrassed because I didn't have to move him back. Instead, I honored him by moving him forward. Now, this is all inside this parable that Jesus is talking about. So at face value, it kind of looks like he's telling his followers how to use reverse psychology and get honored at a dinner banquet. Um, but like, why would Jesus care? That's the big question. But if we look at all the rest of Jesus' collective teachings, it just doesn't match up. Jesus continuously tells his followers to put others first. So why would he be telling them to use reverse psychology to get themselves honored? The fact is, he wouldn't. So that's not what this is about. Rather, he's promoting humility to his followers. And just to be clear, Jesus is not promoting some sort of self-degradation. He's not saying, you should think of yourself as the lowest person on this planet because you're just trash. He's not saying that. But rather, what he's saying is you should humbly decide I want to put others first because that's what Jesus did for me. As the saying goes, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. And humility was something that Jesus demonstrated perfectly on numerous occasions throughout his life. In Mark 10:45, it states, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom to many. A great example of this is in John 13, 1 through 11, when he washed the disciples' feet. I don't know if y'all have ever thought about this, but feet back then, much like today, are disgusting. But it's even worse back then because they wore sandals and they didn't have floors. They had dirt and a lot of it everywhere. So whenever they would walk into the house, if they're of a high social standing, they would have a servant that could wash their feet off. And so this washing of feet was not, a, was not a task for a master, much less the Son of God. But Jesus humbled himself so much to the point to where he went to the ones that he was leading, and he got on his knees, and he washed their feet. But the greatest example of Christ's humility to us is his death and resurrection on the cross. 
the cross was a tool used to used to execute the lowest of low in society. So when Jesus was hanging up there on that cross, he was viewed as the lowest of low at that point. He humbled himself to the point of death on that cross for us. But fast forward 2,000 years later, our, he has churches and churches of followers here to sing praises to him and worship him and honor him and to grow closer and closer to him. The lowest, what was seen as the lowest of low at that point is now raised up as the highest of highs. We gather every week just so we can worship him. So there's one major lesson that we can learn from this section of that passage. is the only acceptable stance before God and his kingdom is one of utter humility. Because anything else besides complete and total humility before God is pride. And as Christians, our entire faith is built around the idea of humility, that there is nothing we can do to save ourselves. Thus, we humbly ask God to save us, knowing full well that we don't deserve any of it. Tim Keller states, humility is a byproduct of belief in the gospel of Christ. In the gospel, we have confidence not based on our performance, but in the love of God. This frees us from always having to be looking at ourselves. So in verse 16, Jesus starts going into another parable about a banquet. It says, a man was giving a large banquet and invited many. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who were invited, come, because everything is now ready. But without exception, they begin to make excuses. And once, once the master of the house heard all these excuses, he was furious. And he starts sending his servants out to invite the poor, the lame, the sick. All these people that probably normally wouldn't have been invited into this party. So what's happening here is whenever this host decides to have this banquet, he sends out his servants because they didn't have text and email and social media and all that other fun stuff. So I can't just be like, hey, Sam, do you want to come to dinner tonight? No, I have to send a servant over to Sam. And Sam has to be like, oh, yeah, I'll go to dinner. And that's probably a few weeks in advance. That way I can get all the stuff I need to make sure we have enough food for everyone. So by this point, the day of the event, people would have already told them, yes, I'm coming or no, I'm not. And in this day and age, it would have been considered extremely rude to say on the day of, sorry, I know I told you to cook food for me, but I'm not going. And honestly, some of these excuses are hilarious to me. One got a new ox and wanted to try it out. Um, one just bought a field and wanted to go see it. Um, the other one's like, I just got married. So I've been working in some form of youth ministry or another for the past eight years. And I have heard some hilarious excuses for why people can't, can't go to church or do events. Personally, my favorite was my parents are making me go grocery shopping. What this person didn't know is that five minutes before, their parents came to me, and they're like, try and convince him to go. He doesn't have anything to do. So there's that. But anyway, we make some hilarious excuses. Some are more absurd than others. But whenever we're looking at this parable at face value, and we're like, okay, they, they denied going to a dinner event. Like, what's the big deal? So when we look at it as a dinner, it's not that big a deal. But when we look at it for its true meaning, it becomes significantly more important because the banquet in this case is representing heaven. And the original people who were invited rejected the invitation. 
they rejected the invitation to that heavenly banquet. And these were the type of people that kind of expected they should be there. So these were the people that think, I should be honored the most. I should be in that, in that place of honor. And they expected to be there. So in terms today, these were the people who think they earned their way into heaven somehow. That they did enough good things, or they're a good enough person, or they did all the Christian things. And so they deserve to be in the heaven. However, they were too preoccupied with other things of the world, such as property, business, relationships, to accept that, that free invitation into that heavenly banquet. And again, when the host finds out, he's furious. And he instructs the servants to go out into the city, find the poor, find the sick, and invite them into the party. Now, these would be the people that never expected that they should be there. In Christian terms, these would be the sinners who are like, why, why would God let me into heaven? Like, have you, have you seen all I've done? These would be the people that think they have no shot of getting there. But God still says, come on in. You're welcome. And the same is true for us. If we think we've earned our way into heaven by doing enough good things or being a good enough person, we're going to reject that invitation of grace. But if we know we're not worthy to be there, whenever we get that free invitation of grace, we wouldn't miss it for the world. In fact, we would give up every little thing that we had just for the chance to be there because we know we're not worthy to be there. We know we don't deserve it. The good news of the gospel is that even though we don't, we still get that free invitation to come into the banquet and dine with the Father. So in this room, we all have that invitation to the heavenly banquet. However, there's a very sad truth that many of you will reject it. Statistically, 70% of teenagers reject the gospel by the time they get to college. So there's usually roughly about 100 people in here. Um, on an average Sunday morning, 30 of you, statistically, will continue into your faith when you're in college, which is so sad. But it doesn't have to be that way. We all have that invitation to follow Jesus, to trust him, to make him Lord of our life. And just to give you a little bit more hope, also statistically, two-thirds of the 70% go back to the faith, so there's that. But... <laughs> It's still a really sad number that at some point, 70% would say, yeah, Jesus, I, I don't know about that. But anyway, if, if you're in the position where you're not yet a Christian, I beg you to consider this invitation of grace that God is giving you. And if you find yourself in the, in the position where you consider yourself a Christian, but it's pretty much just by name, and you're making excuse after excuse as to why Jesus cannot be the Lord of your life, I beg you to reconsider whatever that excuse is that's keeping you from following him wholeheartedly. Because he also offers this free gift of grace. So in the closing nine verses, these are also often referred to as the cost of discipleship. And it's all, almost like a warning or the fine print and because Jesus is giving quite a few shocking statements in these next couple of verses. And he wants you to know, this is the cost of following me. 
In verse 26, he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Wow. That's a lot. His followers, because it also says he was surrounded by a great crowd of people, they would have been shocked to hear this statement. But before you tune me out, hear this. Jesus is not advocating that we hate everyone around you. Got it? Rather, he's advocating that we love him. So, because we are so in love with him and so passionate about following him, in comparison, everything else in our life, because we love him so much, it almost looks like hate. Because we love him so much. It's not because we actually hate our father and our mother. Trust me, he's not calling you to do that. That would be highly in conflict with pretty much the rest of Scripture. But he's calling you to love him. But if that means that you do have to leave your father and mother in order to follow him, because in some cases, children aren't free to go follow Christ because their parents are part of another religion. So he's saying if that does mean that you do have to leave your father and mother, be prepared to give up everything for the cost of following me. So, an example of this. I care about all of y'all in this room, or else I wouldn't be up here, because I have stage fright. So, I care about y'all a lot, because I want to make sure that y'all are diving into Scripture, and that y'all are following God, or else I wouldn't be up here. But, my wife, my wife Kara over here, I care about her a lot more than all of y'all. Sorry. <laughs> so, that's kind of how it is in this Christian walk. Yes, I care about all of y'all, but in comparison to how I care about my wife, it just doesn't compare. There's a huge difference there, and that's how it is with Jesus and everything else. In comparison to how we love Jesus, everything else just pales in comparison. And one of Dave's points that he brought up whenever he preached this was that if we are loving Jesus to the full extent that we should be, we're going to love our family. We're going to love our friends. We're going to love all those other things that Jesus listed a lot better. Because what happens? Jesus comes into our life. We see his great love for us, and he changes our lives. We're no longer caring only about ourselves. We're caring more about others. We're starting to love like Jesus loves And that is going to make all the difference in how we love our family, how we love our friends, and how we love those around us. Because Jesus has come into our lives and completely changed us. It changes how we work, how we live, and how we go about our day-to-day lives. So then we get to this part about bearing our own cross. This would have been especially shocking to the people in this area, in this era, I'm sorry. Um, Because, again, the cross was viewed as a abhorrent evil reserved for the lowest of low. So they would have heard Jesus be like, bear your own cross and be like, you want me to do what? Because it was this evil thing that the Romans used to torture and execute people. And also, may I remind you, Jesus has not yet been crucified on the cross, so they don't even have that, um, the whole thing to think about. It's like, we think, bear your cross, we're like, oh, Jesus bared a cross. They don't know that yet. So they don't even have that whole symbolism yet. So... Why is Jesus calling us to carry a cross? 
One, if we really think about it, it's the death we deserve because of our sins. But there's an even bigger point besides that, that, and that's what Jesus is going after here. If you're carrying a cross, you're on death row. You're literally carrying the instrument of your death on your back to go be crucified. And that's what Jesus is talking about. If we are to follow him, we must be get willing to give up everything in the pursuit of him. So if we're following him, we're putting ourselves to death in pursuit of what he has for us. Not a literal death. But what it means is that our desires, his desires far outweigh our desires. We give up our plans for his plans. That's what carrying your cross means, is that you're continuously putting yourself to death in pursuit of Jesus and his will. And this rang especially true in the age that Jesus was teaching this in. Christianity was not the primary religion. In fact, if you're a Christian, you're often persecuted because the primary religion was Judaism. So you would have had to leave your family in order to pursue Jesus. And like I was talking about earlier, you might have literally had to been willing to give up your family. So Jesus takes this so seriously that he asks the, the crowd to consider if they are willing to be true disciples, if they are willing to give up everything to follow him. In verses 28 through 32, um, he describes two hypothetical situations. The first is a man building a great tower. And he says, before starting it, wouldn't, wouldn't the builder of the tower stop and think, do I have the resources to complete this tower? And Jesus kind of speculates because if he doesn't have the resources, he'll start building this tower and then run out of resources. He won't have enough brick. He won't have enough money, whatever it is. And he'll be the laughing stock of the town because he started building this great tower and then had to stop midway because he ran out of money. Or this king who goes off to war, would he not stop and consider, can I defeat that army with the army that I have before going and facing them? Because if he knows he can't, he's going to stop and say, maybe we can work something out. Maybe we can maintain peace and send a delegation ahead of them before they start battle. And this is how it works in the Christian faith. Jesus doesn't want us to casually decide, I'm going to follow Jesus without considering what it means. Just like it would be foolish to start building a tower without seeing if we have the resources to actually build the tower. And I'll close with this. Mark Driscoll states, salvation costs you nothing. Discipleship costs you everything. So, Y'all should definitely discuss that portion in your breakout groups. Um, and we are going to go break out here in a second, and I'm going to pray for us. Dear Lord, I thank you for this day, and I thank you for everything you've done for us, Lord. And I pray that if there are those in here that do not know you, Father, that you will just continue to work in their hearts and draw them towards you, and that they will see you as Lord of their life. Um, and for those that do know you, I pray that they will continue to chase after you with everything that we have and all that we are, and that you would just continue to be king of our, king of our lives in everything we do.